first threw out this issue of the image of God the other day, and I've got a whole bunch of stuff here. It really boils down to a pretty simple thing, I think. Uh, we'll be willing to follow it more if we, if we need to, but from the original state of man, we work to the fall of man, and from the fall of man to the theories of the imputation of Adam's sin. So we are getting into this in pretty good shape at this point. Okay, now, uh, in determining man's original state, we are, and I love the way Strong says it, uh, wholly dependent upon Scripture. And let us remember that when the creation is done, Genesis 1, 31, uh, God's pronouncement over the whole thing is, it was very good. And it was in perf it was perfect. So obviously it would have been very good. That goes for man as well as it, as it does for the rest of the, of the physical creation. And the creation account declares that man was made in the image and the likeness of God. And I do not want to come to the conclusion before we work through, but I think we just about have to here. We are dealing with what I said the other day, that parallelism of thought. Image and likeness are essentially in parallel. And we will see some other theories that get into trouble if you, if you try to get too much more than that out of it. But uh, certain things that we know we can't get out of. Uh, the word image is used 16 times in the, in the uh, Old Testament. And the Aramaic word is used uh, similarly in Daniel 2 and 3. And by the way, that word image can mean anything from the idea of likeness to a real image that is built to which people bow down and to which they worship. So it is a word... And you are very aware of the fact that we use words in different contexts in our English language. Uh, I don't have it handy. I've got, I saved it. Sent it to my English teacher daughter and my homeschooling daughter uh, the other day. But uh, somebody has written a poem. It has apparently evolved over years. Will, that deals with the frustrations of the English language. And uh, how many words mean so many different, you know, the same word can mean so many different things. Uh, have any of you studied German? Uh, there is a great poem, and it's out there somewhere. Have you seen it, Melissa? You know what I'm talking about? Mark Twain's poem? The title of it is The Wonderful, Awful German Language. And it is, uh, it is, again, a classic piece of play on. And uh, with my name, Moritz, will you allow me to say that God <laughs> smiled when he made Germany. And he laughed out loud when he made Germans. And uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, that, uh, there, is, there is no question about that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, okay. Uh, but the idea, the idea of image can be anything from a likeness. You could, in a very generic sense, not as an object of worship, look at the pictures of Myron and Thelma back there, and the picture of, I see Marilyn Weeks right there, and there's a picture of Dr. Richard Weeks. That is an image. That is a likeness of them. Okay, That has nothing to do with idol. That has nothing to do 
with object of worship. It is simply a likeness of them. And especially Dr. Weeks could step out of that picture with him in his, his uh, Maranatha jacket. He could, he could just step out and walk right through that wall into the, uh, into the room here. He was, he was five feet, four inches tall. And he was a mental and spiritual giant. Uh, he, was, he was a unique, uh, unique man. I just this summer wrote a history of Baptist World Mission for the 50th anniversary. And he was very involved in those first years. And I brought to memory some things I knew and documented some other things. But at any rate, those are likenesses. They are. That is an image of Richard Weeks. There's an image of Joe Rammel and Myron Cedar Holman and Monroe Parker and Richard Clearwater's over there on that uh, on that wall. So uh, uh, that it can mean that, or you could set up a bale down here, and it could mean that. You follow me? Context determines how the word is used. So God said, "Let's make man in our image and in our likeness," and it is only. The interesting thing, uh, that word is used 16 times, those words are used 16 times in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. It is very interesting that five times man is said to have been made in the image of God. <coughs> and two times, now, now we're getting to some specificity, two times image and likeness are used together. Genesis 1 Genesis 5, God created man in his own image and in his likeness, and Adam begat his children in his image and likeness. So obviously, Scripture is telling us something there as well, but, uh, but only those two times are the words used uh, together. And the word likeness, number two up here on page 13, uh, let me get to it. Uh, the word likeness is the idea of of uh, similitude, and I think I went too far. You know, if it weren't for the, the characters who run these things, they work very well. Uh, how am I skipping page 13? I'm on page 14 there. How do I do that, Casey? At the bottom, by that plus sign. Bottom by the plus sign. Yes, sir. Just plunk on the plus sign. I think so. That's good. Good. Thank you. All right. There's certain things I know to get a computer to do, and other things I relied upon you young generation. Okay. I don't understand the skip to that. Anyway, well, now I've really gone. <laughs> okay, um, so the words are only used in parallelism in this passage. Let's let's cut to the chase and get going here. Good grief! <laughs> right, um, and so. There are, and I still want 13. Am I on 13? Yeah, I am. Okay, good. I'm right where I want to be. Uh, right down here. Uh, this is, um, just a minute, let me, tell, let me give you my source. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, 
the theological word book of the Old Testament. Okay, uh, they set out four different theories that have been advocated on image and likeness. The Roman Catholic theology that is imitated that is maintained that image refers to man's structural likeness to God, a natural image which survived the fall, and likeness refers to man's moral image. Which he is with which he is supernaturally endowed, and this it is this likeness that was destroyed in the fall. Uh, problem is you have a hard time supporting that with scripture. Uh, the second idea is that the more important word of the two is image, but to avoid the implication that man is a precise copy of God, albeit miniature, the less specific and more abstract the mute was added. The mute then defines and limits the meaning of salem. Uh, number three, no distinction is to be I guess I've got to go to the top of the next page here on this one. Uh, no distinction is to be sought between the two words. They're totally interchangeable. And then the fourth idea, it is not Salem, which is defined and limited by Demute, but the other way around. Listen, you can wade through all of that. When you're all said and done, you are dealing with the Hebrew language, which deals with parallelism of, parallelism of thought. And I think what we're saying is God made man in his image and in his likeness. There is a resemblance. There is a revelation of God, a reflection of the divine nature in man. And I think to go beyond that, uh, is really to uh, is really to stretch it, and uh, unless you, somebody wants to follow that some more, do you have anything else since you're the guy that raised the original question? Is that good enough at this point? Okay, all right. Uh, so those those are the ideas, and we'll we'll get to the moral nature of man, where I think we see this reflected more. Now the. Recounting of the generations of Adam repeats the truth that God made man in his likeness, Genesis 5 and verse 1, and Adam then reproduced in his own likeness, Genesis 5 and verse 3. And as we pointed out earlier, God instituted capital punishment for murder because the murderer had destroyed the life of a man who was made in the image of God. <laughs> and Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that man is made in the image and glory of God and the word image there, and that is a word that we deal with every day of our world, of our lives. Now in this computer age, uh, it is the word icon, and it is used frequently throughout the New Testament, and it is a representation, is the, uh, uh, the idea. And you'll see it there, an artistic representation on, is on a coin, an image or a likeness. So there is in man. There is in man, not that we are deity, and of course we've got to get far, far away from that, but there is in man a reflection of the purpose of God and a reflection of the nature of God in the way that we are made. And then James's statement in James 3 and verse 9 uh, that we are made after the similitude of God and uh, it's the only instance in the New Testament of this word. Uh, it's an allusion, obviously, to Genesis chapter 1. And notice down here at the very end, uh, there is 
uh, one thing is certain from the passage, and that is that even fallen man retains some semblance of the divine impress given him at the original creation. Now, let's go a little further with this. Part of God's work of sanctification in those who are saved is to restore the image of God in the believer's life. Uh, take a look at Ephesians 4.24 with me. Will you please for a moment? And there's another verse, and I don't know why I didn't use it here, but uh, there's another verse that pops into my mind that I think I ought to, uh, I think I ought to introduce in uh, in the in the thought process as well. But notice how Paul says it in, in uh, Ephesians four. Let's start in verse twenty-two. That you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Obviously, we are marred by the fall. Are we all? We're all aware of that. Okay, and we can all go that far. Uh, who wrote that great old hymn? And I don't know when the last time I heard it sung was, and I'm going to spare you having to hear it sung. But uh, awake my soul in joyful lays and sing my great Redeemer's praise. He justly claims a song from me. His loving kindness is so free. He saw me ruined by the fall and loved me notwithstanding all. He saved me from my lost estate. His loving kindness, oh, how great. And I think that the hymn writer is teaching us something there. But now watch. Uh, we put off the old man, concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So after our salvation, God is in the process of working out his righteousness and his holiness in our lives. The verse that I can't figure out why I didn't put into the notes is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about the glory of God being revealed. You remember in the old covenant and in the new covenant, and the old covenant was the ministration of death and the new covenant is the ministration of life. And he gets down to the end of it and he says, but we all beholding as in a glass, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. And how does that happen? He tells us, even as by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is in the business, is in the work as we get into the Word, as we see the glory of God revealed in the Word. He's in the business of fashioning us and changing us progressively into the image and the likeness of the glory of God. And so, uh, and we can, when we get to sanctification, we'll, we'll deal with other verses like that. But uh, that is the, uh, and, uh, look at, would you, little b, I can't figure out why I didn't put it in notes. And I read this this morning, maybe too early. The Holy Spirit's work of progressive sanctification uh, deals with, or the whole, yes, deals with the Spirit's work of changing the believer into the image of God's glory, and I've got it there. Good. Okay. Ultimately, Ultimately, and by the way, I'm going to pick a bone for just a minute. Turn to Romans 8 with me, will you please? And I'm, 
I have very good friends who use this verse differently than I do. But look at 8.28 and 8.29. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I want to be very specific about that verse. You, if any of you have been through Jim Burke's change into his image, and Jim is a friend, and that is a great piece of work. So I'm not picking on him here. He, along with other good friends of mine, want to use Romans 8.29 in reference to the progressive work of the Holy Spirit going on today. Now, I don't deny that that's going on. 2 Corinthians 3 is one of those verses that deals with it. Notice that Paul's statement, Romans 8.29, focuses on eternity. He did predestinate us to be conformed to the image of his Son. What Paul's talking about in Romans 8.29 is the ultimate, final, completed end of our perfection in Christ with a glorified body. You follow me? So uh, is the principle there of progressive sanctification in Romans 8? Well, what's going to be finally accomplished, some of it's going on right now. I understand that. But Paul's point in Romans chapter 8 is not the here and the now and the today. Paul's point in Romans chapter 8 is the ultimate and the perfection. Same way, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And 1 John chapter 3, is that verse 2? I believe that's right. Is looking at that ultimate perfection that you and I are going to realize. That, can you imagine, and I understand eternity is timeless. So forgive my finiteness, will you please? Can you imagine the first 24 hours without a sin nature? <laughs> it's, and and that's, that's the oxymoron of it. But uh, that is going to be a thrilling and a wonderful experience. And then he goes, John backs up. He goes in 1 John 3, 2 from the ultimate We'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And he gets into September the 9th, 2011, in 1 John 3, 3. Every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. And there is that ongoing purifying process, the ultimate perfection, the restoration of the image of God, is that to which we look. And that is a... That is a glorious thing to see. All right, so obviously the, the issue of sanctification gets in here. Now, the next question then comes. What does Scripture mean by the term the image of God? Or in what sense does man reflect the image of God? 
And Strong gives two answers to these questions. He says that man bears a natural likeness to God or personality and a moral likeness to God or holiness. Well, the intellect, the sensibility, the will, the personality that we talked about earlier uh, certainly comes from God. <coughs> the moral likeness uh, to God that Romans 2, you remember we looked at conscience the other day, and that conscience that either excuses or accuses, and that that inborn sense, even, even under the fall of right and wrong, that, that moral likeness to God or holiness. And we're not to conclude, and this is the thing I think we have to be very careful of, we're not to conclude that man bore any physical likeness to the creator through the body, though the body created by God reflected his purpose for man. And I don't know if that's my statement or if that's not Strong's because I don't have him in quotes. I'm not directly quoting him here. But that may be about the best way to say it. We are not to conclude that man bore any physical likeness to God. God is a spirit, John 4, 24. We all together? 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says of God that in of Christ that in his own time he will show who is that blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. To whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And if music, in its biblical, God-intended sense, is given in part to teach us as well as to help us in worship, we've got it biblically right when we sing, Immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. So nobody can come up with a conclusion that man bears a physical likeness to God. He is a spirit. He has robed himself in light. Uh, I quoted 1 Timothy 6. I think it's the 104th Psalm who says that he has clothed himself with light as with a garment. And the only representation of God's presence that anybody is ever aware of and the Bible ever talks about is that brilliant light that is the representation of God's glory with mankind. The sight of the glory of God was like a devouring fire in the midst of the mountain. The glory of God filled the tabernacle, filled the temple, and the priests could not enter. The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were so afraid. That brilliant light that is the symbol of God's presence with mankind is all we know of our God. So we do not bear any physical resemblance to God. We are made by his design. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We reflect in our physical creation his intent. Therefore, the body is some reflection of the intent of the creator. Am I clear? That's the best I can do with it. 
Well, we're talking about infinite creatures limited by time and space dealing with an infinite God and his revelation to us. We have to say, this is what we understand from scripture and we're not going to try to go beyond that. Okay? All right. Now, let's see if we can continue to be clear here. So, even in man's body, uh, let's, let's follow strong here. Reflection of this divine image in man's physical form, even in man's body, were typified those higher attributes which chiefly constituted his likeness to God. A gross perversion of this truth, however, is the view which holds upon the ground of Genesis 2, 7, 3, 8, that the image of God consists in bodily resemblance to the Creator. Uh, and we've already worked on that, so I think we're, I think we're good there. Right? If the soul of man is transmitted by natural generation, tra traditionism, then we must conclude that all men, saved or unsaved, are in the image of God. The prohibitions against murder and cursing of one's fellow man certainly support this conclusion. Now, the image of God is surely marred by the fall. We understand that. But let us remember that the institution of capital punishment and the affirmation that murder takes the life of one who is made in the image of God was a statement that God made not only after the fall but after his judgment upon mankind by the flood and even in our post-fall condition we are reflectors of the image of God and we ought to be careful how we speak of our fellow human being because we curse man who's made after the similitude of God. And that is a obviously a post-fall statement. So even after the fall, we reflect and retain something of the image of God. That would take you to Psalm 8. There is, and I do not, we're not talking about man worship here, but there is a dignity to human life and there is a dignity to the human condition. Yes, sir. That's interesting. Uh, I was just thinking, when it talks about when God said, let's make man in our image, mm -hmm. that literally has the idea of a, like a cutout, correct? That, that word image? Being like a I have not seen that analogy drawn in any of the scholarly stuff. Okay. Clearly that man reflects the purpose of God, the moral nature of God. You can't you can't get away from that. That's well more what I was thinking was after this after the fall, that's something that God never said changed. No, sir. No, sir. Which is an interesting thing. Yep. Yep. And it is also interesting. I thought about that early this morning going through these notes. There is a place where I hope I remember where it hit my mind and where, where, I, where I will say it. But, um, but you see, God created the world. He created us. And the whole thing is under the curse. Thus, the disease, the death. And see, when you get... This just popped into my mind. But turn to Revelation chapter 21 and let's notice... Let's notice what eternity is going to be like. And John's plain, overt statement. 
I can find it now. Revelation chapter 22. Look at verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. And so we have no idea. If you if you think, and we do, we look at this physical creation and we marvel at the sunsets. We stand in awe at the majesty of the mountains. I walked home, I think it was day before yesterday, I stepped out and I looked up and here it is in September, not a cloud in the sky. Absolutely gorgeous. And if the peacefulness of a lake in the tall pines in northern Wisconsin, uh, the beauty of the white sand on the beach in Clearwater, Florida, uh, if, if that is the beauty that we enjoy now, what is it going to be like when there is no more curse? And what will these human bodies be like when there is no more curse. And the very first thing that we say about it is there will be no more death. We, 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 are, we are given hints and we're beyond the reach of the mind of man to grasp that whole thing. Yes, ma'am. I don't really have a question, but I've got some things going on in my mind. And yeah, anyway. Um, for one thing, the description that we have of um, angels and seraphims and such is also similar to like what we look like. I mean, they've got wings, but other than that, we picture them mm -hmm. similar to us. And then the other thing I was thinking about is um, uh, Jesus, you know, has a body yes, like ours. And um, I mean, obviously, when he was on the earth, he looked like a Jew. But doesn't it say in Revelation that he'll have like snow white hair? Now, let me tell you. And the, the representations of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, you find that same, basically that same representation first in the seventh chapter of the, of the book of Daniel where the Son of Man comes and stands before the Ancient of Days. And Jesus' identity in the New Testament as the Son of Man. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a term of deity. It's a term the Jews would have understood as deity. Okay. And be, I want to be very careful here. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And you've been in Christology and pneumatology, and we worked through the incarnation of Christ. He had a human body like we have. Okay? And we understand that and we accept that. I am not sure that the vision revelations of Christ in Daniel, Revelation 1, Revelation 11, is it? Revelation 16, the several places where you <coughs> see those visionary revelations of Christ. I am... I'm not doubting that he does have and will have a physical body. I wonder if those 
are symbolic. For one of them says, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, with, with it he'll, he'll destroy the nations. Uh, clearly, the word of God. You follow me? And so I'm wondering if those are, because in Revelation chapter 5, there stands one like as a lamb having been slain from the foundation of the world. And I believe that the scripture is using symbolic language to describe the appearance of Christ, to describe his work and his person. Now, in the, I can't really remember the description in Daniel, but it, mm -hmm. is it quite similar to the one in Revelation? If you, let's take a minute. Because this this gets, folks, I, and I, I'm not going to take too long with it, but this gets to the uh, to the message of Christ, and I can bring it home real quick and give you some good witnessing, preaching, teaching, counseling stuff with it at the same time, all right? Daniel chapter 7, and uh, this, is, this is Daniel's second vision of the nations. The first vision of the nations is in chapter 2. You remember the great statue with the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the legs of iron, the belly and the thighs of, of uh, brass, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, and they're the kingdoms and the eternal kingdom of Christ is going to destroy them. In Daniel chapter 7, they appear as animals. And the first one Daniel sees is the lion with wings on it, like an eagle. Now, God was accommodating himself to the Babylonians, just to cut to the case, to the chase real quick. Take a field trip someday and go to the Oriental Institute on the campus of the University of Chicago. And there, William Brady Harper was a flaming liberal. He was the first president of the University of Chicago. He was an Orientalist. He graduated from Muskingum College at age 16 as valedictorian of the class and delivered the valedictory address in Hebrew. Uh, and he was a flaming liberal, but he founded this Oriental Institute on the campus of the University of Chicago. And there you will see these statues of lions. They stand, as I remember, about that tall, and they have wings like eagles plant, painted on them. Daniel and the Holy Spirit used the Babylonians' self-image to define them and describe them. When Daniel repeats that vision to his Babylonian counterparts, they knew God was talking through the prophet about them. Follow me? So you're, you're dealing with imagery and symbolism here. All right, now, come with me real quick down to Daniel chapter 7, and let's start in verse 9. I beheld till thrones were cast down. The ancient of days did sit. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. And come with me to 13. I saw in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and with the Ancient of Days. Whoa. I've got the wrong time. Here's the Son of Man passage. Come to Daniel chapter 10. And you understand, ma'am, I'm doing this without notes. And I've got to, uh, I've got to find the place. 
you go, Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. I lift up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body was like a barrel, and his face is the appearance of lightning, his eyes as lamps of fire, his arms and his feet like colored to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now you go take that and put that by Revelation chapter 1. And you are very, very close to John's vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here comes this one, like the Son of Man, who stands before God the Father, before the Agent of Days. Jesus, in, in uh, Matthew 16, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The short point I wanted to make is this. Eighty-some times, the Gospels use the term Son of Man. All eighty times, it is the Son of God who uses that term. It is his term of self-identity. And isn't it interesting, no man hath ascended into heaven, but he that is from heaven, or he, he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, John 3. And what's the next thing that Jesus said? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus tied himself together, Son of God, Son of Man. How do we sing it? Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God, Son of Man. The hymn writer grasped the third chapter of the Gospel of John exactly. And when you talk about Christ, Son of Man, you were talking about Christ from God. But the, 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 the vision in Daniel 10 and Revelation 1 are very parallel. So, um, so Christ has a body or an image that is something that we can imagine, or do you think that our imagination is based on the, you know, Daniel and John's? I believe when you and I see him, as best we know, he was recognized after his resurrection by the 120. This same Jesus, taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. We shall see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I believe he's in a glorified body today. Will we see the five bleeding wounds that he bears? I wonder if we, he's broken your scars. But will we see them? Thomas looked at them and said, My Lord and my God, I have no indication at all that we will see anything other than the glorified, recognizable form of the Son of God on Calvary's cross. The other language is imagery to describe the perception of his eyes as a flame of fire, the word of God which proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, one more question. Sure, go ahead. A little deep, but 
So I guess what I'm leading up to is um, was the image or the body, so to speak, of Christ after the creation of man or prior to it. <laughs> Christ assumed human form in a manger in Bethlehem. Yes, ma'am. He is eternal God, but he took on human form and was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he is not eternal in a body. But I, my understanding is he will be for all eternity now. And listen, there have been so many goofy things. You didn't get around all of the goofiness, but but there have. It, it's good just to go back over that. And if you haven't been in Christology and pneumatology, you will deal with it when you get there as well. But. Dear old M.R. Nihan, and he, the Radio Bible class was a great ministry, but M.R. Nihan was a medical doctor, and he wanted to argue that the blood of Jesus Christ was sinless blood, and of course it got to, was it caught and taken to heaven, and all, all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of, 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 of things like that. Uh, its eternal power is in its shedding as a sacrifice for sin. And we have no indication that anything happened, but when the soldier uh, drove that spear into the side of Christ, that it flowed out and fell on the ground, and that was the end of it. You follow me? And it was in the shedding of his blood that there is forgiveness for sin. But uh, at any rate, uh, there, and there, there have been folks gotten into these goofy ideas that his flesh was different than our flesh. Flies in the face of Hebrews 2. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And there was nothing special, supernatural, sacred, or anything else about the body. He assumed human form to live as a man, to identify with us in our sin, to become our substitute, to become our sin bearer, to give his life a ransom for many, to rise from the dead, to deliver us, who through fear of death were all our lifetime subject to bondage. Yes? Um, okay, I was okay with the answer you just gave me, but then I remembered my research paper from Christology. <laughs> and I remember having gone over all the Christophanies mm -hmm. and uh, the appearances of Christ prior to uh, his birth. Mm -hmm. So, like, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Abraham. Uh, yeah. And those are the better one. The only thing we can tell we can say is that he appeared in angelic form or he appeared in human form. And when it was over, men said, We've met God. Jacob wrestled with God. Okay. All right, let's let's go on here. Uh before the fall, God placed man. And by the way, Shailene took asked us a whole bunch of questions, and here I sit making reference to Hebrews chapter 2, and I've got the fact that uh, the image of God is surely marred by the fall. 
We're not now what God created us to be, and the image of God is still present in fallen man. And God's purpose for man revealed in Psalm 8 is not now revealed, Hebrews 2. And Christ came to restore the image of God in fallen man by his death. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, Hebrews 2, verse 9. All right, and then you get into that whole passage on the fact that he became like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. It's quarter till good. We're doing all right. Okay, so any other questions there? I shudder to ask. No. <laughs> That's all right. Anything else? Okay, let's go to the perfect environment. Before the fall, God placed man in the perfect environment. The Garden of Eden was unscarred by the curse of sin. It was an ideal environment, and God specifically prepared it for Adam, and he prepared Adam for it. And God provided for man's physical needs. He told him, you can eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, you're not to eat of. Not only did God provide for man's physical needs, but God provided the companion for man in Eve. And Adam is faced, God brings the animal creation by, and Adam names them, apparently classifies them, and for Adam, there was not found and help meet and help appropriate for him. And so God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. Now, how many of you at one time or another have ever used Matthew Henry's commentary? Anybody have? What, 1600s did the man live? And you probably want to use the abridged one because the, the unabridged is very worthy to say the least. But, uh, and I don't, I don't go to Matthew Henry very much, but this is an old statement that is absolutely classic. If I tried to perform a wedding and did not use one statement I'm going to use here, I would go home and hear about it. So I pretty much work it into every, every wedding that I ever use. And when I get there, you'll see why. Okay. God caused deep sleep to fall on Adam. While he, while he knows no sin, God will take care that he shall feel no pain. God as her father brought the woman to the man and his, as his second help, or his second self, and a help meet for him. That wife who is of God's making by special grace and of God's bringing by special providence is likely to prove a help meet for a man. See what need there is, both of prudence and prayer, in the choice of this relation, which is so near and so lasting. That had need to be well done, which is do to be, which is to be done for life. Our first parents needed no clothes for covering against cold or heat, nor for for neither could hurt them. They needed none for ornament. Thus easy, thus happy was man in his state of innocency. How good was God to him! How many favors did he load him with? How easy were the laws given to him? Yet man, being in honor, understood not his own interest but soon became as the beasts that perish in his rebellion against God. Here's the statement that I paraphrase, that I use when I perform a wedding. This, this, you just are grateful when somebody gets it. 
that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. You see why mama tells me I have to use that when I, when I, when I perform a wedding ceremony? And uh, that's, that just, you know, certain times guys just get it. And that was, that's timeless. All right, now, Adam was created a mature man. And Eve was created in the same state. And Adam is created, Eve is created, and God immediately begins speaking to them. God's the inventor of language. Man is mature, capable of understanding that language, capable of communication with his God right there from the beginning. Have any of you read Whitcomb and Morris's book, The Genesis Flood, or read in that book? And that is, man, that book is getting close to 50 years old now. And it is still a classic. But the whole idea, and Terry Mortensen and uh, the Answers in Genesis people and a lot of folks uh, have gone on with it, but the idea of an apparent age, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. Uh, just that, just, <laughs> just that simple. But, uh, but God created the earth with, with the apparent age. And um, that's very clear. Morally, Adam lived in a state of untested holiness. Ecclesiastes 7.29, the word used to describe that word, and, and uh, PDF didn't like it here. And for some, for some reason, uh, there are a set of standard thoughts that are used on the Maranatha campus. And I don't know if it's a printer that doesn't read them or what the deal is. Or if it doesn't like it from my computer to a computer here on the campus, I don't know. But uh, but anyway, uh, it's an ethical term meaning upright. Uprightness is the manner of life is a characteristic of the blameless, Proverbs 11.5, and of the man of discernment, Proverbs 119.128, I have lived uprightly. Thus the fact that God has made man upright is probably to be interpreted as granting him the ability to recognize the divine law rather than some inborn character is honest or straightforward. It is said of the reckless that his soul is not upright in him, Habakkuk 2.4. And this leads to a state, or to pride and to failure. Now, here's where my earlier thought, I want to stop on this. God communicated with Adam. Apparently, God fellowshiped with the man and the woman at regular intervals. Turn to Genesis 3, will you please? This is after the fall, but it is apparently giving us the indication of what went on on a regular basis. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. The Bible says they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And Adam will say that he hid because he was afraid. But apparently, can I call it appointment? 
Apparently, it was a regular thing. We are not told that they saw the Lord. We are told they heard the voice of the Lord God as God came in the cool of the day. And they were created capable of communion with God. And they were created for communion with God. May I introduce a word here, and I think it is a fair word to introduce into the biblical record right here. There's a whole load given to us in the fall. But the word I want to introduce right here is the word worship. We're told in Revelation chapter 4 that God created not only for his glory, but he created for his own pleasure. You and I were created for fellowship with God. Even in our fallen condition, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord. Proverbs 15, have I got verse 8 or verse 29? I can't remember which one I've got. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the upright is one of them. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, but the prayer of the upright, can anybody add that next word for me? Is his what? Delight. We aren't bothering God when we go to him in prayer. He delights in our communion. We were created for communion with him. And he created us for communion with him. And did I not earlier, way early in this process, talk about Christ and the woman at the well? The Father seeketh such to worship him. And that was the purpose of the creation. And we need, we need to get a hold of that and understand that that again gets into the whole thing of language. There starts, by the way, folks, the Bible's plot line. Sin messed up what God intended. And what got ruined in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is restored in Revelation 22 and 23. And everything that happens in between is God's working out his sovereign eternal plan to redeem man and bring man back into fellowship with him into a place where there will be no more curse. And the thing that will absolutely, and I hope we stand in awe of it for all eternity, he saved us, he called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And I misquoted that verse. Please forgive me. 
2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, and I left out a little particle, ta idea, and it's maybe the most important part of the verse. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to his works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And Paul's statement is telling us that there is a grace that is unique to God, a grace, I take it, of which we are not capable. And it is his own purpose and grace. And he gave us that in Christ before the world began. Now, knowing that we would sin, he could have, by fiat, righteously declared that when man sinned, he was damned forever. And he would have been perfectly holy in doing so. He could have aborted the creation. But to create us and to work out in human history an eternally devised plan to bring man back to himself. Christ hath once suffered for sin, but just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18, that he might bring us to God. The Father seeketh such to worship him. And ultimately, there will be no more curse. And we are seeing the foundation for that laid here. Folks, whenever we start to talk about the purpose of God, whenever we begin to talk about the grace of God, I hope that we walk away in absolute awe. Number one, I hope we walk away and I count it as a virtue. I don't know if, the first, if my descriptor is virtuous or not, but you allow me to use these two words together. I hope we walked away in we walk away in abject humility. To think that a thrice holy, eternal, almighty God created us for fellowship with himself. We rebelled against him. And he has been and is working out an eternal plan to remove the curse and bring us to him. Now, you can figure that out over the weekend, okay? <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are dealing with the purposes of an infinite God, are we not? Uh, who, who wrote it? I don't remember who wrote it. Grace greater than our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. That's more than we'll ever grab a hold of. But all of that is laid in this. And so God, God communicated with Adam. And apparently God fellowshiped with the man and the woman at regular intervals, Genesis 3, 8. And by the way, may I follow that with one other thing? When Cain slew Abel, the idea of bringing a sacrifice to worship God 
was not just a happenstance, uh, oh yeah, let's do this type of thing. Take a look at um, Genesis 4 and verse 3 just real quick, will you please? In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel brought the, the, uh, the lamb, the first fruit of the flock. And I have in my Bible a marginal note at Genesis 4 and verse 3, and it's about as good as you can do in rendering the Hebrew. The marginal note reads, at the end of days, there was a rotation of days and a process of days. And apparently, immediately after the fall, God had instituted a day of worship. Since he instituted the Sabbath before the fall, can we assume that the Sabbath was the day of worship? I think that is a fair assumption. Now, some folks have gone beyond that and speculated that where they came was to the garden of the gate of uh, the gate of the garden of Eden, where the uh, where the angel and the flaming sword was to keep them out, and that's where they came to worship. But you have the indication of a regular process here at which they came to worship God. Yes, sir. Could that process of time just be the uh, coming about of through the land, so he had something to bring? Uh, some seasons? Uh, I think... The growing seasons? Yeah, yeah. Certainly, if we are into certain fruits, certain things bringing fruit at certain times, that may well be involved with it. But you go, re go read the exegetes on this. Go read Kyle and Dalich or one of the, one of the exegetical commentators on, on the Hebrew language and about everybody I've read is talking about the rotation of days, the process of days and that there was some establishment of the day of worship. Okay. Right. And of course then you get into a whole big battle over why did God reject Cain's offering and that would be with that in worship. Okay. And I, I do get to teach a class on worship here. So, but uh, that's that's for another time. All right, good. Now, uh, God placed man on probation in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, 8 through 17. And the Bible declares that Adam was the head and the representative of the race. Now, folks, turn to Romans chapter 5. We're not going to settle all of Romans chapter 5 here. We will be back to Romans chapter 5 in maybe the next section when we get or when we get into the uh, imputation of Adam's sin, that is for sure. But let us establish only <laughs> this much at this point that when God's dealing with Adam, Adam is the first man and he is the head and the representative of the human race. And that's all I want to walk out of here with right now. But let's, let's establish that much because we're going to come back to this theme over and over again. Romans, the fifth chapter. You ready? And let's look at verse 12, where we are told, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so then death, or, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Look at verse 14 again. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude 
of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that is that was to come. Now, Paul throws a second thing in here. He will deal with it more in 1 Corinthians 15. But he not only says that Adam represents the entire human race, he says he is also the figure of him who is to come, who is Christ. So there is an Adam, and there is the last Adam. Let us disabuse ourselves of Wesley's Christmas Carol language there. Adam's, or Wesley wrote, second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Paul calls him, the last Adam is the Lord from heaven in 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, second implying there might be a third and a fourth, but Christ, or Adam and Christ stand uh, as representative for the race. And then you come to Hebrew, or to uh, Romans chapter 5, look at verse 16, and we're told again, not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For if the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. If by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So we are told very clearly that Adam represents the human race at the fall, but we are also told that there stand in juxtaposition to, at the head of the human race, Adam, in whom we sinned, Christ, in whom we are made alive. And as in Adam will die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So you have, and I think, I think it's good for us to understand that and to have that, uh, have that fact and that point uh, established uh, for us here. Now, we've got five minutes. Let's press ahead, folks. Those five minutes could become precious in October and November. Uh, we are told that the serpent brought temptation to Eve and deceived her. Genesis 3. Let's take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Sarah, would you start us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? And if you'll start in verse 1, and Brother Flack and Melissa, let's read the first three verses there. And Sarah Dial, if you will get, um, if you will get uh, Genesis 3, and let's just start around and read a few verses in Genesis 3 as well, okay? All right, 1 Corinthians 11. Yep. So 2 Corinthians. What does the note say? It's 2 Corinthians, right? I'm sorry. May I go back May I go back to the German thing again? Not only did God laugh when he made Germans, I am German, you have to understand what I mean, not what I say. Okay. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with my godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, who is subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from simplicity as in Christ. All right. The serpent beguiled Eve. Now, Genesis 3, let's start there. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Of the tree, well, the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, uh, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's, I think that's far enough for now, okay? Oh, no, one more verse. Go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. Which verse? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Thank you, sir. All right. Now, let's establish this much in about two minutes or three minutes here. We're told that the serpent brought temptation to Eve and deceived her. And Paul reinforces that in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, now, this is old James Pettigrew Boyce, who was the first president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1859, when the place was founded. Uh, a serpent might innocently, he, he says it could have occurred several ways. A serpent might innocently and alone have been the occasion of the suggestion of the thoughts to Eve. She saw the snake and got these ideas. Uh, some evil being might have accompanied the innocent acts of the serpent to suggest to her mind that the thoughts by which uh, he, uh, the thoughts by which he would tempt her to sin. Uh, an evil spirit might have taken possession of the serpent to bring about the temptation. And the devil may have been the only agent, and the reference to the serpent is only allegorical. Now let's those those are some things that Boyce suggested. We do not, we do know that the scripture calls Satan a serpent in later passages. 2 Corinthians 11, Revelation chapter 12, he's called that old serpent, the devil. You remember that, uh, that scripture language? Uh, he is somehow active in the serpent to bring temptation. I don't think the, reference, the references are allegorical. Uh, did the serpent talk? Uh, what was... Not so unusual that Eve would stop and have a conversation with the serpent? I do not know. By the way, how did he get around before the fall? It's the curse that he goes on his belly. So, you know, was he legless or did he have legs? Who, who, knows, what, uh, who knows what he looked like? But somehow, the devil possessed the serpent, spoke through the serpent, ever what you want to say. I believe you have to take it as literal. And the woman succumbed to the temptation and fell. And it is 10 after we will pick up there on Wednesday. We'll see you then.